From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Nothing has been shown to decrease mortality rate in critically ill patients, except when you avoid iatrogenicity. The large tidal volume approach is the best example. It's not good to give a large tidal volume to a mechanically ventilated patient. That's the best example of the positive trial we have in critical care medicine. But otherwise, look at anything you like. You know, blood transfusions, no improvement. Swan gas catheter, no, no. This and that, no, 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 no improvement in survival. But then we can sit and we shouldn't do anything because nothing has been shown to decrease mortality. <laughs> and that's Dr. Jean-Louis Vincent. And many of you know Dr. Vincent. He is uh, well-recognized in the world of critical care. He's published over 1,300 original scientific manuscripts, 400 book chapters, and he's edited 123 books. His name pops up in PubMed more than 1,300 times, and he's been cited more than 230,000 times with an H index of 195. Dr. Vincent is well known since 1980. He's organized an international symposium on intensive care and emergency medicine in Brussels. Further, he is the editor-in-chief of several journals, including Critical Care, ICU Management and Practice, and one of my personal favorites, Current Opinion in Critical Care. Jean-Louis is a, a, a true giant in the world of critical care, and whether you know it or not, on your daily rounds, I assure you, some part of Jean-Louis is involved in the active care of your patients from day to day. I had the opportunity to sit down with Jean-Louis and talk a little bit about some of the advances we've seen in critical care over the last decade or so, as well as his approach to rounding on patients and preventing iatrogenicity in the ICU. Let's take a listen. And you mentioned that you had trained. I didn't realize that you were actually here at LACUSC and you spent a couple of years here as a trainee. Yeah, to be precise, uh, my, my, my teacher, Professor Weil, was really you know, the, the founder of uh, critical care medicine, uh, was uh, affiliated to USC, but uh, he was working in a smaller hospital on Vermont Avenue. It's the Hollywood Press, Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center. And that's where he had his department. And your experience here versus what things were like back in Europe, did you find a big disconnect or difference in terms of the approach to practicing critical care? Well, yeah, but again, it was a long time ago. Uh, it was 40 years ago. And I very much liked the rational approach to uh, critical care medicine. Uh, you know, you could only propose what has been shown as valid in the literature, and there was very little place for opinion. Whereas in Europe, it was still, you know, the patron type of thing, you know, the old guy's advice, uh, I think you should do this, I think you should do that. But what do you mean by I think? Uh, well, that's my experience. But, you know, that was a long time ago. Now we all accept the evidence everywhere. And the um, big difference now is that people in, in Europe are more often at the bedside now than the big shots in, in American ICUs. So now it's the other way around. It's uh, the American doctors who are very interested in what's going on in Europe uh, because clearly a lot of good 
advances are now made in Europe. It's so interesting that you say that. I think, especially with COVID, I really felt like there was a big shift in terms of patient care. Uh, we were much less likely to gown up and glove up and put on all of our PPE to go in and examine patients, you know, assess their cap refill. Instead, they're behind these glass doors in these negative pressure rooms. We're trending labs, asking for nurses for their assessments. And I feel like we, we really lose a lot if you're not actually laying hands on our patients to assess how they're doing and responding to our interventions. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with you. There is a risk there. And actually, it's also a risk associated with modern technologies. Uh, we all have our uh, PC on, uh, on, a, on, on, on a table uh, moving from one bed to, to another. But actually, you cannot go close to a bed with this type of thing when you are 15 in the making rounds together. So uh, we, we still make rounds uh, you know, without any of these uh, equipments and people should know enough by heart and, uh, and they should tell us, um, you know, using a problem-oriented uh, approach, they should tell us about the patients. But we still go at the bedside, we examine the patients and we feel it's important. And so when it comes to hosting rounds or holding rounds, do you have any key pieces of advice for those who are, let's say, starting in the very intimidating environment of the ICU as their first rotation as a resident? We should indeed uh, accompany them and be available for help and guidance. We should be the guides of these uh, uh, young guys who do not know very much about the ICU and so they quickly understand that there is some uh, hierarchy. We, we also learned it during COVID when it was the real surge. Uh, initially, some people were taking care of their patients. And when someone else wanted to help, uh, they, they, they said, you know, go, go, go there. There is a patient there. I have no time to see. No, that's not the way to do it. We need to apply a pyramid approach with a leader who knows enough about clinical care medicine who could help the others and uh, and supervise what the others do. And it's the same for nurses. Uh, there is no point in having clinical care nurses working uh, nearby non-clinical care nurses. The clinical care nurse should supervise the work of, uh, of, of other nurses. Uh, and that's how it should work. So it's part of the organization of, uh, of ICUs in uh, Hopefully, it works pretty well in, um, in uh, everywhere, especially in the U.S. and in Europe. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, several societies, especially at the start of the pandemic, really were supportive of this concept of a team-based approach where you do have this pyramid-style schemata, leaders, and then those underneath them. So I think the key point here for those that are starting out is you are not alone. Correct. There is always help around and don't feel, you know, intimidated or fearful that that's some sort of sign of weakness. We all need help and there's always help available. And we all lear learn from each other. We always learn uh, during these discussions. Um, definitely. Yes. It's been about 40 years, you said, since you did your training here in the U.S. And obviously you've been super accomplished when it comes to all things critical care. And I would love to hear from you, Dr. Vincent, what are some of the 
the the most important, maybe the top three most important developments in critical care medicine since the start of the century, or let's say since 2000? I think we have made great progress in the organization of our ICUs. We understood that rounds are very important. We understood that people cannot be there 24 hours a day, so they must uh, delegate and uh, they must accept that others take over. And there is no point in um, being uh, in a bad mood or yelling at people when you come back because you think that that things were not uh, done optimally. No, uh, you know, you, you, you get much more by, by smiling and helping and supporting the others. But you must also make clear that the messages uh, come through uh, quite uh, explicitly uh, and, um, and, uh, and clearly. And, and this is uh, how really we have learned how to make better rounds. Um, you know, in, at the, some time ago, it was not rare uh, that people would uh, consider rounds as either boring or excessively uh, funny and where people could speak about this and that unrelated to the patients. And of course, this is unacceptable. So rounds should not be uh, the sad period of the day, we should look forward to rounds, actually, but not so much to have fun, but primarily because we feel that this helps the patient and that this uh, allows us to provide the best care possible, the best possible care. And so, you know, we have made quite a bit of progress in there. I very much believe in the problem-oriented record. So... For the trauma patient, we speak about the head trauma separately from the abdominal trauma and the bone trauma, for instance. And people may say, well, they're all related. You cannot cut patients in pieces. No, that's not the point. But when I speak about head trauma, I speak about the neurological issues, the intracranial pressure monitoring, the uh, the recent CT scan, etc., and when I speak about the bones, I speak about the surgeon who passed by and this, this and that. I may speak about pain. I may speak about mobilization, physiotherapy, etc. And when it's the abdomen, I may speak about uh, feeding uh, and uh, drains which are still there and perhaps uh, coagulopathy associated with, etc., etc. So it, it makes things clear and it avoids reminding some things out of the blue. Oh, I forgot to mention, there is a prime of arrhythmia too. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was, no, no, no. It should be individualized as a problem. Problem of recent arrhythmia. The patient had recent arrhythmia, maybe related to a myocardial trauma or maybe related to previous problems, but I will not forget it once it is a problem on my list. And so... And the nurses like it too, because sometimes at the end of the rounds, otherwise they don't remember all the facets of the uh, of the patient management. And, and here, just by looking at it, and we have it on the computer screens in our department, and people, of course, can have a printed page if they want to, if they want to have it in their pocket, but they could also have it on their smartphone, and they could immediately look at the at the problems of each individual patient. I think it helps a lot. 
I completely agree. And it's interesting because what I've noticed in many ICUs is oftentimes they do an organ-based or systems-based approach. So they'll start neuro and then with neuro, they start talking about sedation and analgesia. And I've never liked that approach. You know, for me, if a patient's in the ICU, they should have at least three major problems. And identifying those problems is really critical and tells me, yep, the the learner or house staff is thinking about the issues. They're able to identify three, four, five critical problems that need to be addressed and then go through them systematically using a sort of SOAP approach uh, versus just going by systems. I agree. I agree. Um, except that I would not focus on the principal problems and at the risk of forgetting some other problems. I like to have the full list. But I may say, after the three important ones you mentioned, I may say, okay, problems four, five, six, seven are not really so important. We'll keep them in mind. They are here, but I will not speak about it. Okay. But never forget the minor problem because the minor problem may become a big one. Yes, big time. And in terms of prophylaxis and avoiding hospital infections or other never events, we always add on our fast hugs at the end of every assessment. And so how has that evolved over the years? This is something that you wrote about a while ago. Yeah, a long time ago. And it seems like many places have adopted it. I wanted to keep it very simple. And as you can imagine, people wanted to add things and, uh, you know, and uh, adding, uh, I don't know, relatives. No, there is no point. I will not forget the relatives. So uh, we, we need to keep it short and we need to involve the nurses. The fast hug is not just for doctors. It's perhaps for nurses more than for doctors. And we like the nurses to go through it, uh, you know, the F of fast hug, feeding, the nurse should be concerned about that. Uh, when you ask a nurse, how is this patient fed? The nurse should not say, oh, no, the patient is not fed, but nobody told me I should feed the patient. No way. You know, today the nurses are so good, so well trained, they can raise the question and they can say, you know, this patient needs to be fed and how shall we do it? And we may reverse the question. We may say, what do you propose? Do you propose to try some enteral feeding? And how would you do that? S same thing for the A and S of the fast hug, analgesia sedation. It's not that the patient should not have pain. We can all identify pain at the bedside. Give me a break, you know, when you say that some people sometimes uh, do not <laughs> see it. You can see when a patient is in pain. But usually we do the other way around. We gave a lot of analgesic agents to make sure that the patient has no pain. And the patient is deeply comatose uh, on, on morphine or fentanyl or remifentanyl, whatever you like. But uh, that's not good. We should give just enough to avoid pain. Patients should not have pain, admittedly, of course. This is very important, but not, not too much. Sedative agents, you mentioned sedatives. You know, that's also something that we have learned over the years. Today, in our department, we use very little sedative agents, very little. Only uh, for patients who are clearly agitated because they are heavy drinkers, maybe, or because they have some uh, intracranial problems. Okay, okay, okay. We don't want the injured brain uh, to be too excited 
Uh, okay, but otherwise, mechanical ventilation, if the patient has no other problem, the patient can read the book uh, while being mechanically ventilated. I'm saying a book, not a comic. We are very good at comics in Belgium, as you may know, but a book, a real book. Uh, and I have pictures of this that I love to show. So uh, this is very, very important too. The nurse should raise the, the point and say, okay, don't you think we can now reduce the doses of sedatives? Not just once a day, as some people have said, every hour, every half an hour, if you like, each time we go <laughs> in the room, we should raise this question. Could we discontinue the sedative agents and see how the patient behaves and perhaps restart it if needed, but at least we should try to, to stop it. And then the T is for thrombolytic prophylaxis. Also, you know, perhaps less commonly now than before with the modern uh, computerized problems, if there is no uh, low molecular weight heparin being given, there could be a pop-up signal in the in the monitoring system, uh, in the computer, in, in the PDMS. Okay, but uh, otherwise we sometimes tend to forget about this and it's good to have this type of reminder. H is for head of the bed elevated when there is no contraindication and this limits the risks of, uh, uh, of nosocomial pneumonia and especially ventilator-associated pneumonia in mechanically ventilated patients. And U is for ulcer prevention. If the patient is in stress, maybe on corticosteroids, maybe with some coagulopathy, it may be wise to give uh, a, a, a PPI uh, to limit the risks of, uh, of bleeding from, uh, from ulcer. Uh, you know, uh, I, I found so weird a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago where they gave uh, uh, PPI versus placebo in a large number of critically ill patients. And the conclusion of the paper is that there is no advantage. Oh, what is no advantage? There is no difference in mortality. Hey, I don't give PPI to decrease mortality, my friend. And then when you wrote, when you go into the results, you can see that there is a much less GI bleeding, less need for transfusions when you give. So it works. Don't tell me it's ineffective. It does work, but of course it will not decrease mortality. Nothing has been shown to decrease mortality rate in critically ill patients except when you avoid iatrogenicity. The large tidal right. volume approach is the best example. It's not good to give a large tidal volume to a mechanically ventilated patient. That's the best example of the positive trial we have in critical care medicine, but it shows that we should avoid harm. But otherwise, look at anything you like. You know, Blood transfusions, no improvement. Swan gas catheter, no, no. This and that, no, 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 no improvement in survival. But, you know then we can sit and we shouldn't do anything because nothing has been shown to decrease mortality. And finally, fast hug, we have the G for glucose control. And this should trigger the, um, the possible administration of a long-acting insulin if we see that the blood sugar levels remain quite high uh, through the entire day. And then the nurse usually raises the question, don't you think 
instead of using regular insulin, don't you think that now I could use a long-acting uh, insulin? And that's a good idea. Sure, it simplifies the management, and, um, and so uh, it may be valuable. And that's it. That's the fast hug. There is no need to add anything else, even though, of course, there are many other things which are very important. I want the patient to have some bowel movement. I want the family to be aware of what's going on. I want the air to be clean and, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, there are so many things to do. But uh, uh, in yeah. the fast hug, these are the things that we too commonly forget about. <laughs> Absolutely well put and agreed. And I do want to talk more about the organizational yeah. sort of advances that have happened in critical care and the key role of yeah. nurses, RCPs, RTs, PTOT, etc. But getting back to the ulcer prophylaxis, a question that I've always wanted to have answered, and maybe you're the right person. If someone has high risk factors for yeah. GI bleed, they're mechanically ventilated, they're on a PPI. Once enteral tube feeds start, can we stop pharmacologic prophylaxis? That's a, that's a good question. And uh, in, in many cases, yes, we can, because the best way to prevent GI bleeding is to, is to have this enteral uh, 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 feeding uh, substance in, in the stomach. So in many cases, yeah, uh, it, it's sufficient. Now, if your patient has a history of... Uh, of ulcer, is on high-dose corticosteroids, and has a coagulopathy, <laughs> I may still maintain the PPI. The, the point is, I very much like personalized medicine. And protocolized medicine is okay when uh, the patient is uh, uh, quite uncomplicated in uh, the various factors that we have identified. But in many cases, we need to use our brain. And that's why we were trained as doctors. So people seem to desire that we can do everything without doctors. But I don't think so. And the nurses wouldn't like it. So uh, we can still individualize our treatments and consider that in this particular patient, I would still keep the PPI because I think the risk is quite high. So I would feel more comfortable uh, keeping the PPI on board. But in most cases, I agree. When enteral feeding is started, we can do without it. Yes, indeed. I agree. So friends, that's part one of our interview with Dr. Jean-Louis Vincent, the true giant in critical care. Make sure to tune in to part two, where we'll go over some hot topics in terms of research, thinking about outcomes, and a number of other hot topics when it comes to the world of critical care medicine. If you like what you're hearing, please share it with us as well as the world. You can leave us a five-star rating as well as a kind comment at Apple iTunes or wherever you normally download your podcasts. It's been a while. We are back. We're so excited. Season three of Trauma ICU Rounds, Jean-Louis Vincent to kick it off. Take care, friends.